0: If you were asked to cook the books, would you? That's the position Aaron Beam found himself in when his boss told him to fix the numbers so that Wall Street investors would not be dissatisfied. And so he did. Aaron is the author of Health South, the Wagon to Disaster, and the Ethics Playbook. And he's our guest on this edition of cfo bookshelf hi everyone i'm mark gandy of cfo bookshelf my friend and co-host bruce reed he's on assignment as mentioned aaron beam is our guest and he's the author of health south the wagon Two disaster highly recommend it Aaron did serve three months in prison for his role in the accounting and reporting fraud at HealthSouth, a company he co-founded, and that fraud took place around 1996 and continued for another six years. We talked about how he became a CFO, how the fraud started, the boss he feared, ethics, and so much more. So let's go ahead and press play on the interview. So Aaron, I loved your book, Health South, The Wagon to Disaster. And on a pre-call uh, a week or so ago, I'd mentioned to you, okay, a lot of us know world the Enron situation. Maybe not as many people know about WorldCom, but I still, it's a high number. Adelphia, uh, for those of us who worked in public accounting, we're familiar with, with that situation. A crazy Eddie, crazy Eddie. That should get a smile. Oh, yes. in, yeah. That should get a smile on everyone's uh, face. But Health South, I had to just wait a minute. Health, Health, Health South. When you speak, have you found that people you've had to jog their memory a little bit?
1: Well, a lot of time has passed since uh, it all went down. So, to some extent, I'm, I speak to a lot of college kids, and uh, a lot of them have no clue about what Health South was. Now, if they're taking an ethics course or an advanced accounting course, they probably have read about the Hell South case because it's covered pretty well in all of the uh, textbooks as a case study. But it is kind of interesting why we're not as well known. Uh, I'm not really mad that I'm not known as a bigger criminal as some of the other guys, but uh, even before all this happened, for some reason, When we were doing good, we are a big company. We are on the New York Stock Exchange. People thought we were in the insurance business. Uh, I'd meet people and I'd say, I work for HealthSouth. Oh, the insurance company. And I I don't know how that got started, except that HMOs and things like that all came to the forefront about the same time HealthSouth went public. So for some reason, we got kind of thrown into that. People did not realize we owned hospitals and surgery centers. We had bricks and mortar. We were not an insurance company.
0: But can you share? Interesting. Can you share a little bit of your background, Bruce? And I've already talked a little bit about you, but can you just share how you got started uh, the accounting world? In fact, you had a you kind of had a, a backdoor way, or not a backdoor, but you kind of mm-hmm. it's an interesting way of, the, of how you started your career and, and becoming a yeah. CFO.
1: Well, I actually majored in economics in college. And uh, when I got out of college, I realized that nobody with just an undergraduate degree is going to hire you to be an economist. But I very quickly discovered that every company, every organization has a set of books and everybody needs a bookkeeper. And so initially I started basically as a bookkeeper, even though I knew how to run a trial balance and pull a financial statement. I had 12 hours of accounting when I was in college, so that's when I got out of the Navy. My first job was working for a startup company, and uh, I did everything for them administratively. It was a bunch of engineers, and uh, accounting was part of what I did, but I soon discovered that if I was really going to make accounting my career, I needed to be a CPA, so more than 10 years after being out of college, I had taken enough accounting courses that I could sit for the CPA exam, and I passed it and became certified in Texas, and that's how I really met Richard Scrushy he, he was looking for a uh, controller for his division at Lifemark Corporation, and one of the requirements was to be a CPA. You know, I really did not want to go into public accounting. So I thought, well, this is a pretty good fit. um, I'll be working for a New York stock exchange company, but I won't be doing auditing. I'll be uh, a divisional controller. So that's how I started my career in accounting.
0: What were the early days of HealthSouth like? Uh, For example, the business plan called for generating $100 million in revenue, I believe, in five years, if I'm not mistaken. But what were the early years like? What so did did you? I have actually I have like five questions in one here. But okay, uh, the the business model uh, did you like it? Did you did you believe in the business model? Do you think it was solid? Um, what was it like early on?
1: The early years were a lot of fun when we were starting the company, raising venture capital, taking the company public, uh, knowing everybody's name in the company. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but you know, by the time we became, a, had 40,000 employees and I had hundreds of locations I n- had never even visited. And I, I found that, uh, it wasn't that much fun to run a r- really large company. I liked the startup aspect of it. And early on, Richard Scurshey respected me because he was doing everything for the first time. He had never raised venture capital. He had never taken the company public. So he relied on me a lot early on in the process of, of putting the books together, talking to investors. And, um, you know, at that point, he, he really respected what I, my input. But you read the book. As time went on, um, he became the man and he, he, he didn't want any input from me. By the time we were a billion-dollar company, uh, he, he, he had gotten out of me what he wanted.
0: Revenue recognition can be tricky. There's also a judgmental aspect because of third-party pay. Can you explain that? You mentioned that in the book, and you did a very simple yes. it very simply to where even I could understand it, but just <laughs> explain where you're dealing with, again, tricky numbers, uh, almost like a, like a greasy pig in a way.
1: Well, it all goes back to accrual accounting. Uh, when you record your revenue uh, in any business, you haven't yet received any cash. So you haven't really completed the deal. Uh, so booking your revenue is, is a game of estimation, estimating what you think you're going to collect, and you have to make reserves for bad debts. In healthcare, you have discounts with HMOs, Medicare, Medicaid, you have a lot of bad debts. So when a patient uh, runs up a bill of, say, $10,000, you know you're not going to collect the full $10,000, not in healthcare. So you have to make allowances to book that revenue, and there's where the judgment thing comes in. You have to make allowances for how much of that $10,000 you're not going to collect. And of course, this is a window to committing fraud because uh, not only is it tricky, but very few people understand healthcare accounting. Uh, I defy anybody to go into a hospital, spend a few days there, have some surgery, and be able to understand their bill when they go home. It's impossible. People don't understand it. So that makes it subject to... um, Problems right there. Now, I would like to correct you in one thing you said. You said before the company went south, we really weren't, we never really went south. Our company never got into financial trouble or anything like that. We were not like WorldCom, who the business model there went south. They started having problems in the industry and they did things to help their accounting to make their numbers. Our problem was Richard Scrushy overpromised Wall Street what he thought we could deliver. So it wasn't a matter of going south. We just weren't able to make the numbers that Richard was promising, and um, that's uh, to me that's a distinction. That's a difference. We were a very good company. We were making plenty of money, but Richard wanted more and more and more because he had millions of stock options and the only way he could really fully realize the gain on those stock options was to keep the stock price going up.
0: And, and again, Aaron, that's a good point of clarification, wrong choice of words. I was thinking more going South in terms of the reporting (laughs) and, and the, and the,
1: well, it did, it did in in fact go South, but it uh, was uh, a good point.
0: So I noticed a hundred million dollars in net worth in the early 1990s, that's your boss, hundred million million in net worth. I think I read earlier in the book he generated about one one point one billion dollars in compensation over a ten or ten plus year time period. Right? Was that just not enough?
1: You know, it, it's really I can sort of understand I, I, people that have never made a lot of money they probably think, boy, if I only had a million dollars, that'd be all the money I would ever need. And I was kind of in that category. When I started the company, my annual income was $50,000 maybe. And I thought, man, if I become a millionaire, that'll be enough. Well, it's funny how people are. You you get to where you got that kind of money. And so you, you build a... Five hundred thousand dollar house. You buy a sixty thousand dollar car. You buy a lake house or a beach house, and the next thing you know, you really need to make two or three million to keep your lifestyle up. Now, Richard was just same thing, but you would think when he was worth five, six, seven hundred million dollars, you would think. That's enough. He he he. Got to just kind of say, man, I am a lucky man. But he openly told people in 1995 that he wanted to be a billionaire. He said, I want to be the richest man in the state of Alabama. And uh, if you ask the average person on the street what causes fraud, most people say greed. People are greedy. That's the reason people commit fraud. And with Richard, that really was the case. He was greedy. He wanted more and more and more. But many times people get involved in frauds, much like I did, because I wanted to hit Wall Street expectations. I wanted to, um, to some extent, I wanted to keep the money I had. But I I didn't participate in the fraud because I thought I'd make a lot more money. That really wasn't the way it went.
0: I I picked up. The, again, this is interpretation. I'm glad we're getting to talk. I got the idea, Aaron, that maybe fear had a little bit to do with it. Yeah, you have a there's a quote, and I've got this uh, written down. All of this was done. All this was done, and we may be getting ahead of ourselves. This is where some of the misleading uh, shareholders, of the misleading financial representation. All of this was done because of the sickness of one man, and that's uh, Richard Scru- Scrucci. So all of this was done because of the sickness of one man, and I had the chance to stop him. But unfortunately, I didn't, and it has made all of the difference. And that's early on uh, in the yeah. book, in the preface. And I got the—I was under the impression that fear was one of the drivers as well. Is is that correct, Aaron?
1: It was. Fear and frauds in general are done out of all kinds of emotions, and fear is one of the big ones. Uh, Richard was a scary person. I mean, I, I really believe that if he and Hannibal Lecter got into a fight, Richard would win. Um, he, he's a, he's a carried a gun in his briefcase. Uh, when the FBI uh, raided the Hell South building, they found a, a room, room uh, full of uh, automatic weapons. Um, he was a scary guy, and uh, he he had the ability to intimidate fear. Uh, his eyes were just scary. Um, I, I was doing a talk show in Birmingham when I wrote Hell South, the wagon to disaster, and a, uh, a lady called in, and she said, Mr. Beam, you may not remember me, but I used to work for you at Hell South. And she said, when I occasionally had to take checks in for Mr. Scroogey to sign, she said, I would tremble. Uh-huh. He had the eyes of a reptile and it was scary just to be in his presence. So, and he had that ability to to, to scare people <laughs> into doing things. Um, it's, just, it's hard to explain. You just have to be around him to understand what I'm talking about. But uh, now – Fear too, fear of losing my money, fear of disappointing Wall Street, not just Richard Scruci, but Wall Street in general. So there's all, fear is a big motivator in, for many types of fraud.
0: Losing a job. Uh, losing a
1: job, disappointing your family. Supporting your family. Yeah, all those things.
0: Hey, let's let's back up just a little bit. Uh, during that high growth period, you guys went on just an acquisition feast. I mean, you were acquiring uh, properties and and a healthcare provider just right and left. And what, what drove that? Because I found that also fascinating because not only did you have to find uh, these acquisition targets, then you had to buy them, then you had to integrate them, assimilate them, what was that like uh, during that time period?
1: Well, it was really tough. Um, and again, it was all driven in large part by Richard's ego. Uh, we had a very high P.E. ratio on our stock. We were thought of as the leader in the field. And there were about seven or eight companies that did sort of what we did. And so it was easy uh, when our stock was selling at 30 because we, we were earning a dollar a share. Our competitors may have been earning a dollar a share too, but their stock sold for 20. So investment bankers are very good at seeing things like this and putting deals together where you, you trade your stock for their stock. They get a uh, $30 stock for their $20 stock. So with no money out, you, you just trade stock and you acquire other companies. So it was kind of a perfect storm Us to do acquisitions. Plus, investment bankers are smart people. They knew Richard Scrushy had a big ego. They knew he would love buying up his competitors. So every time they saw a company he they thought uh, would make a good acquisition for us, they brought it to us. And investment bankers want to do deals. They want to do deals. They do deals. They get commissions. So that's that's how it all got started. Now, it, it was really hard on me and my staff because Richard really didn't pay. You couldn't go into him and say, No, Richard, we can't do an acquisition. It's going to be too much work for my people. You know, he'd laugh you out of the room. <laughs> so um, it just wasn't an option to turn down an acquisition, but it was very hard on my people. Because, you know, we'd acquired a company with uh, 5,000 employees or 2,000 employees. And overnight, we had to add, you know, 2,000 people to our pay- in our payroll department. Uh, that's a big stress on the
0: company. Yeah, I have a stat from your book. You had 3,500 employees in 1990. And then you're up to 26,000 <laughs> by 1995. Aaron, yeah. that is just... That's crazy. Yeah. I feel sorry for the HR people, uh, oh, the yeah. payroll people. And yeah. hey, I want to I want to compliment, compliment you real quickly, uh, just a quick footnote. You talk I think in the book, uh, it was a chapter before fixed the numbers, but you had a little section um, it's it's acquisition accounting through paper money. And mm-hmm. that was absolutely brilliant. So again, just another reason to get the book oh, because nice. you you have a way of explaining things that's complicated and making it simple, you did that in like two pages. So anyway, just thumbs up there.
1: <laughs> well, thank you.
0: So so speaking of Fix the Numbers, you have a chapter called Fix the Numbers, and that's something yeah. that Richard told you. What does that mean? Fix the Numbers, Aaron?
1: Yeah. Um, we had been doing some what I told the FBI was aggressive accounting starting even in the early 90s. Uh, By aggressive accounting, you you have an accounting background, right? Yes. We we made entries to always help the bottom line. We didn't necessarily make the best accounting entries. We made entries that helped the bottom line. And everything, uh, we could push the envelope, we would. But in the summer of 1996, Wall Street was noticing that our cash flow didn't seem to match our earnings, Analysts were really starting. to was a hard time about the way our balance sheet looked. And I decided, along with my controller, chief accountant, that we couldn't, couldn't do that anymore. So the second quarter of 96, we went into Richard's office and told him we had to report numbers below street expectations. And, of course, he just he went nuts. He's, he's, he turned red. He started trembling. He says, no, we are not going to report numbers below expectations. Um, The stock's going to crash. We'll all be sued, yada, yada, yada. He says, get back in your office and fix these numbers. You've done it before. You know how to do it. You've gotten lazy. Get back in your office and fix these numbers. And it's really funny. During the trial when he was found not guilty, the his attorney said, Mr. Bean, did Richard Scroosy ask you to commit fraud? And I said, Yes, he did. He told us to fix the numbers. Uh, no, Mr. Bean, did he ask you to commit fraud? And I try to answer it in another way. He says, Mr. Bean, did Mr. Scroosy use the word fraud? And I said, No. And he goes, Aha. Isn't a How's job to fix numbers? When he told you to fix the numbers, he was just telling you to do your job. You decided to commit fraud, and I looked over, and the jurors were nodding their heads up and down, and I thought to myself, "This is not going well."
0: <laughs> I could say a lot, but I won't. This is we <laughs> want to keep this uh, family-oriented, family-friendly, no. uh, PG yep. Yep. at least PG thirteen. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, a phrase that came up maybe more than once in the book, two more quarters, well, two more quarters to what, when I say that to you, what does that, what what comes to mind, Aaron? When I say it, just two more quarters, two more quarters, you know,
1: it's just, you know, he always would tell us, you know, we're going to, business is going to get better. We're going to, we're going to cut costs. We're going to sell some of our airplanes. We're just, you just got to get us down the road, two more quarters, whatever, you know, of course, he never he never did sell any more airplanes. He actually bought himself a helicopter, and um, <laughs> so he used to fly to work in a helicopter. Uh, and he had a helicopter pad on the grounds of our office, and he only lived five minutes away by car. So.
0: Fraud, fraud is a is hard for me to wrap my arms around. I started my career. I'm I started my career at KPMG. P. Marwick. In fact, my first audit right out of college, we found a fraud uh, happening. It was really, really? it was luck. And as I step back and look at what happened, I'm thinking there's no way I could have had the ingenuity to come up with what these people did. It was at a state community college in East St. Louis. And it's like, this was very clever. I've been exposed to fraud two other times uh, in my career, it's like it's hard. So the question I have, Aaron, is how many people were involved? You alluded to it a little bit, didn't get into a lot of detail, but I understand that it takes more than one person, or this thing just won't work. So yeah. you had you were involved, uh, the controller, and then the controller had to bring in uh, probably one or two more people. Am I correct? Exactly.
1: Yeah, kind of at the initial night that we cooked the books, uh, Bill Owens, my controller, confided into a couple of his top lieutenants what they were going to do. So I would say day one, there was about five people involved. Um, And now I left within
0: one year, right? Less
1: than a year. So... When I left, I don't think the circle was much bigger than that. Maybe six or seven people were actively involved because the fraud was not massive when I left, but it went on for six years and it grew billions of dollars. And I am told, um, and I don't formally know, but I'm told that hundreds of people either knew about the fraud or were actually helping, helping carry out the fraud uh, seven years down the road.
0: And I apologize for not being able to remember this, Aaron, but out of that six years, how many other CFOs were there? There was more than one, wasn't there? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. There there, there were five other CFOs during that period.
0: So six. And they were all
1: hired from within. It got to the point where it would be impossible for Richard to, bring to someone hire to out- somebody from the outside. It just wouldn't work.
0: That and that uh, that part was not so that makes sense. Okay, so yeah. insiders. So yeah, yeah. six years goes by, Now, I don't want to give away too much in the book, okay. but you did wind up in prison, and thankfully yep. only for about ninety days. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really lucky that I got such a small uh, sentence.
0: And it was like a, the way you described it, it was like a camp. Can, can I ask you real quickly, what was prison like? A
1: federal minimum security prison is the prison of choice. If you have to go to prison, uh, they do a very, very good job of screening people. And if you have any kind of violence in your background, <laughs> if you were a drug dealer and you used a weapon, you cannot go to this kind of prison. Uh, if you had a history of spousal abuse, No matter what you did, you could not go to this kind of prison. So they try to keep it nonviolent people. And I never, I was only there three months, but I never felt in danger. I never felt like I had to be afraid to take a shower, anything like that. Uh, The worst thing about it was the food was terrible. It reminded me very much of boot camp when I was in the Navy. Uh, I joined the Navy. But worse. Uh, Yeah. Well, not much worse. I mean, day one, they take your clothes away from you and they give you your uniforms. Same thing in prison. Uh, They tell you when to go to bed. They tell you when to get up. They tell you what time to eat. They totally control your schedule. Uh, That's what boot camp is. And uh, so uh, it it, it was like being back in boot camp. And thank heavens it wasn't... uh, a dangerous place, but it was a prison. Now, some people call federal minimum security prisons, uh, country club prisons uh, that you play golf. And it's just, just, it's just a good old time. Well, that's not true. Uh, it, 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 it's very boring. Uh, my job was to clean the toilets in the, in the barracks every day. Um, it was not a country club. So, uh, but it, it it was a prison, no doubt about it.
0: Richard got off and I'm just I don't get it uh, on, a, on a phone call uh, a week or two ago you'd mentioned this Netflix series and we'll put this yeah. in the show notes. I definitely want to go through it Netflix what we're talking about here is it's not just a, a, a series or a documentary on him there's also several other people uh, where there's some famous court cases that did not involve murder. And and he was one of them famous court case. So I think he's shown in how many episodes? I believe, but we he's were,
1: episode four. There's episode six so, episodes, and he his episode is called King Richard.
0: And we will again we'll have that in the show notes. How was it that he got off? G- good, good attorneys.
1: Really was good attorneys. At, at the time, I didn't think they were because I thought they were kind of despicable. But you have to realize, and it took me a long time to realize this. A defense attorney is not trying to find the truth. His job is to keep his client out of prison. Okay. Okay. He's not looking for the truth. He's not trying to prove. He's not really trying to prove that his uh, client didn't commit the crime. He just wants to create some doubt in the juror's mind that there's not enough and make them think there's not enough evidence to convict the person. So it all comes down to, will the jury think there was enough evidence? In today's courtroom, people have seen a lot of CSI-type movies. Right. And they think of evidence as fingerprints, blood spatter, DNA, emails, those kinds of things. And his attorneys kept saying, there was no evidence tying Mr. Scorsese to this fraud. No DNA, no fingerprints, no blood spatter, none of those things. Only these felons who have admitted their guilt who are testifying against him so they'll get shorter jail time. He is an innocent man. And
0: they bought it. If you had former <laughs> auditors, maybe some accountants, uh people with analytical mindsets, if that's a different jury. And again, I know oh, yeah. it's not gonna oh, work, yeah. it's not gonna work that way. Uh but is it possible that he would have been found guilty if he had a more oh, yeah. competent jury?
1: Right? And it was held in Birmingham, Alabama. It should have been tried in New York Elsewhere City up. or Delaware or some place where the jury pool would be more sophisticated and uh, but it's uh, you watched the trial by, uh, you watched King Richard you know his attorneys were very clever in how they did everything.
0: I, I'm looking forward to it. I just hope I can contain my my frustration and anger as I watch it. Um, you haven't watched it yet? Yeah, I will. It's it's. Oh, oh it's, you, I, need it, you, know, you need you, to. You would mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and again, I yeah. cannot wait. Uh, Aaron, w- what is your message today? So you do uh, you do a fair amount of public speaking. In fact, you've been doing that for the last ten years.
1: Well, I, I did a lot until the COVID. Well, came up along. until COVID. <laughs> Hopefully, one day I'll I'll do more.
0: Well, so, what is your message to CFOs, controllers, accounting managers? Because we all a lot of us can say, "Well, if I were in Aaron's situation, I would have just said no," and no, it's not that easy. I mean, uh, again, we're talking narcissism at a level to where he's like way off the charts, and uh, you'd hope that nine people out of 10 do the right thing, eight, eight out of 10. But it's it's easier to say it when we're not in your shoes, walking in your shoes. So what's, mm-hmm. what's, what's the message you have for people like this?
1: A couple of things. One is that being ethical takes a lot of courage. It really does. Uh, most people know right from wrong, but people have trouble doing the correct thing under certain circumstances, certain pressures, and my downfall was I could have prevented the fraud from ever stopping if I'd have had the courage to stand up to Richard and say no. So I try to make that point very clear. I, I don't want people to think that uh, I shouldn't have been held guilty because Richard made me do it. You know, I, 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 part of the checks and balances and everything is for people to do their job and my job, I didn't do.
0: You were very, yeah. I just want to state, you yeah. were very forthright in the book. Yeah. And you didn't say that just one time. It, it yeah. You shared that three, four, or five yeah. different times. You were very, I mean, you were clear.
1: Yeah. I enjoy talking to college students, and over half of my speeches are to college students. And the thing I try to impress upon them is that they're going to face ethical issues when they go out there, particularly if they're accounting majors. They are going to see unethical things and they're going to be confronted with it. And they need to prepare themselves for that. I I, I say it's much like if you're working in a factory and it's a dangerous place, you are trained on safety, how to behave safely so that you don't get hurt or you don't hurt somebody else. There are ethical dangers out there, and you need to realize that, and you need to train yourself. Mentally to stand up for what is right, and realize that it's going to happen to you. It, it you, you you saw it. You were an auditor. You 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 know that there's things out there that it's easier to just kind of turn a blind eye, put make a note in the work papers, and just go on. You know,
0: Aaron. I hope this is not a curveball to you, but whistleblowers, whistleblowing, no. are the laws good enough? Fair enough. Is there a safety net that's solid enough for whistleblowers who say, hey, there's something wrong here. I want to come forward. Have you thought about that much over the years? And has that come up in your speaking? I
1: I do. I speak about that. And I think it's a lot, lot better than it used to be. Today, every major company has a whistleblower hotline. Every major company has a compliance officer. Um, So boards of directors are more aware of these issues, and it's I think they're being protected. And with the Dodd-Frank law being passed, you actually can uh, be rewarded financially if you uh, expose a major fraud and the government recovers money. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but I think in about a six- or seven-year period, uh, whistleblowers collected $35 million. Or exposing fraud. Now, it's still a tricky thing. First off, you don't want to blow the whistle on something and be wrong. And be wrong. Then you, you, you've screwed up that's somebody's a life.
0: Killer. Killer.
1: <laughs> yeah, mm. that's a career killer. So you don't want to. You don't want to be herky jerky about it. What you should do if you think you know somebody's doing something wrong, the best thing to do is just directly go to them and say, "Look." what you're doing here is wrong. I think you know it's wrong. You need to stop it, you know. And hopefully, as Barney Fife would say, you nip it in the bud. Um, But if that doesn't work, and particularly if human safety is involved, environmental issues are involved, or stockholders losing money is involved, you should blow the whistle. You, you, You need to. The thing that I think about all the time is as a child, you're taught don't be a tattletale. The mafia, the worst thing you can be is a rat. There's all kind of terms, snitch, uh, stool pigeon, all of these terms that are very derogatory toward whistleblowers. So there's kind of a built-in uh, thing there that you don't want to be a whistleblower. You don't want to be a, uh, uh, you know, what did I say to begin with? don't be a tattletale. Right. So it's it kind of goes against our nature to rat people out, but in certain circumstances you really should. I caused stockholders to lose billions of dollars because I didn't have the courage to stand up and do the right thing.
0: Aaron does ethics training work. I I might rant just <laughs> just a little bit. But does ethics training work in your opinion?
1: Yes, it's just like I said with safety training. If you train people to be ethical and how to do it and how to spot unethical situations, it does work. Now, just paying lip service and saying, uh, do the right thing, don't be naughty, uh, be ethical. Uh, that's not going to work. You you've, you've got to preach you got to walk the walk and preach the talk, but ethics training does work.
0: The reason for my potential rant, which let me rant just a little bit and I want you sure, to push go ahead. I want you to push back really hard. The the late okay. CS Lewis, uh one of my favorite writers. He he once said, I think it's in the book called The Great Divorce, uh he delineates between the grumbler and the grumble. So you can, be a grumb, you can be a grumbler and get over it, but if you keep grumbling and grumbling, you can become a grumble, and before you know it, you cannot undo yourself. And so you take like Richard, I think there may have been a point where he may have been a good seed, a good guy, a good apple, and something just along the way got to the point to where there was no point of return. And that's kind of where I'm coming from is – if you take a person who's already bent toward being greedy and, and a bent toward doing what's improper all the time and can't see the difference between right and wrong, that's kind of where I'm coming from. But I, I do agree with you, but I question if you already have that, that heart who's bent on doing something um, wrong. And so that's um, that's where I'm coming from.
1: Ethics training does not work on a sociopath because they 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 thrive on being dishonest. Okay, right. And one in twenty five people are sociopaths.
0: What? Say that again. One in twenty five people. One are. in twenty five. I did people not. Are. Interesting.
1: Now, now they're not all serial killers. They're not all. Some sociopaths are lazy. Okay. Richard was not lazy. Some sociopaths are. Take a gigolo, for example. He wants to have a relationship with a woman or many women so he can sponge off of them, live off of them, because he doesn't want to get a job. And and that kind of guy may very well be a sociopath. So sociopaths take different forms. And I think when you hear the word sociopath, you think the very worst. But uh, So how many people are sociopath to the point that they commit murder are actually still money. It's probably not one in 25. It's probably a much smaller amount.
0: One of the questions i like to, to ask every guest, Aaron, is if you're going to get to do a TEDx talk at mm-hmm. your local community college, uh, local university, uh, what would be your topic? Now, before I before I shut up, you have a little bit of an unfair advantage because you do do a lot of public speaking. Yeah, but yeah. still, let, let me go ahead and ask the question anyway. And you have not had a lot of time to think about this, but do you have a topic that comes to mind?
1: Well, the only thing I think i am qualified to talk about is ethics. Um, and I've actually thought about going through the process and doing a TED Talk, but I just never have got myself to do it. But
0: uh, I'd be on the front row, sir.
1: Well, well. You know, it'd be much like some of the things I've said today, that people need to realize that um, being ethical is hard work. It takes courage. It's not just knowing right from wrong. It's it's a lot of things. And people, based on circumstances, people think they're more ethical than they are. Mm -hmm. They really say, I would never do, yeah, I wouldn't do that. But put in the right set of circumstances, people will do things that are unethical.
0: Speaking of uh, eth- and speaking of ethics, and I sorry I, I stepped on you. Speaking of uh, a- ethics, you have written a book called "The Ethics." A playbook, and I do hope we get to talk again on another yeah. on another conversation because I've enjoyed this. Can you just give a quick preview of that book? I've already bought it, I've not read it yet. Okay, but I want to. Okay. I want other people to go out and buy it. But can you okay. just give us some of the high points?
1: When I first started doing my speaking, I, I only told the Hell South story, but I noticed during Q and A that people wanted to know they had questions like why do people commit fraud? Uh, what can you do to prevent fraud? All those kind of things. So r- largely based on Q and a questions, I wrote my book called ethics playbook and it's how to be, how to be ethical. Um, how do you spot fraud? All those kinds of things, uh, about five different universities has, have actually used the book as a textbook. That's to great. Ethics. Um uh, it, it's not as fun of a read as wagon to disaster uh it, it's kind of academic it's very academic but uh it, it's a it's a textbook is what it is
0: yeah but it's it's a, it's also a quick read and I, when I say I haven't it's read easy, it yeah. I've skimmed it and it's 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 a quick yeah. i call it an easy read so well, you
1: know Everybody tells me my books are easy read, and that's because I'm just not very smart.
0: I disagree with that. I'm sorry. I can't make
1: things real complicated. I don't
0: <laughs> accept that, Aaron. <laughs> I know better. Well, th- again, this has been outstanding. You mentioned COVID. Are you are you able to do any type of, um, are you doing any virtual I, type dis- meetings? Yeah,
1: I'm doing uh, uh, August uh, 31st, I'm speaking to the University of Kansas via Zoom. Great. I'm speaking to Penn State later on in the month and Texas AM. So I'm doing some Zoom presentations. What has totally gone away, though, are like big conferences that I used to speak at, like CPA conferences. Nobody's booking hotels and filling rooms up with hundreds of people to have speakers come talk to them right now. That's just out of the question. And then they can't get people to go to virtual meetings like they can uh, if they had real speakers live, you know? So it's uh, uh, you also in your uh, prep, you asked me what books do I like to read? Uh, yes. Can we have, can we talk about that a little please, bit? Please, please. Uh, obviously I, I, I say, obviously, but uh, to me it's obvious. I like nonfiction. I, uh, I, I do read some fiction. I like John Gresham and things like that. But uh, I like history books. Uh, a very good book that I read recently, and it was 800 pages, was the uh, These Truths by Jill Lepore. It's a history book of the United States. And it talks about um, particularly how uh, the blacks and women were mistreated. I found it just amazing. I knew it, but I found it just amazing that when Abraham Lincoln emancipated, made the slaves free, and gave them the right to vote, it didn't include women. <laughs> Isn't that right. shocking?
0: Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> so uh, there's many there's many things that are kind of flawed in our history.
0: And I don't think that uh-huh. women's suffrage movement started until no. after about 1900, 1901, right. thereabouts. Right.
1: In, in 1920 is the year they got the right to vote. Exactly. nationwide. You know?
0: Exactly.
1: I like that book. What what, um, what other
0: periods of history do you like?
1: Uh, I like uh, some, I read a book recently called the Colfax massacre. And it was about a small town in Louisiana after the civil war where 150 blacks were murdered uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. And they put up a monument. It's still there talking about, it was a great event because it brought an end to the carpet-bagger era. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Um, I've read recently, and it's kind of a little bit different, uh, a book about octopus, the, the soul of an octopus. Octopus are very interesting animals. First off, they have eight arms. And did you know each arm has a little brain in it?
0: No idea.
1: And it can it can think independently of the other seven arms. And then it has another brain in, in the, its head. It's really one of the most fascinating animals you could ever study. But, uh,
0: Very I also
1: like the book The Rising Tide, which was about the great flood of 1927. And I like the book uh, Huey P. Long, who was a governor of Louisiana. The book was written by T. Harry Williams. Uh, very good book. Ken Burns actually did a, uh, a documentary on Huey Long. It's really fascinating.
0: Any books, now are there any business books that you've gifted to other people, uh, maybe frequently or somewhat frequently, any business books that come to mind that you like?
1: Well, in the area of ethics, um, The Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse by Mary Ann Jennings. The book is about Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, HealthSouth, and she talks about all of these companies having seven things in common, and uh, so the Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse by Mary Ann Jennings. Also, uh, a guy I just love is uh, a professor at Duke University, Dan Ariely, A r i e. You mentioned
0: him, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Behavioral and economist, him. right.
1: Right. He's a famous behavioral economist. He has more YouTube and Ted talk presentations than anybody else in the country. And, uh, the reason he, he, my wife thinks I have a man crush on him, but when he was 18 years old, he was involved in a fire, burned over 70% of his body. Yep. Three years. He was hospitalized in pain, but when he got out of the hospital, he went to MIT and earned two PhDs, one in economics and one in psychology. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Dan Ariely.
0: Yeah, remarkable. And I even find him a little bit easier to read than, say, Daniel Kahneman. I think Kahneman is great. Love his book. But Dan's work and Damn, it's, it's great! He, yeah, he has a YouTube uh, a video which is just over the top. One of my favorite videos of his. and Again, we'll have the, these in the show notes. He does a he does a, a spiel on the pricing. Uh, you remember the the story about the economists and there are the two pricing options. They're just absolutely uh, yeah. crazy. And again, we'll have that in the show notes. Okay. But okay. but huge huge thumbs up, Aaron. Yeah, he's this, really good. Yeah, this has been outstanding. And again, I do hope that we can chat again in the future about your Let's other book. Do it again.
1: At- and uh, maybe, you know, I'm doing podcasting now, so maybe I could have you on one of my podcasts Well, would, would
0: uh, Real quickly before we leave, tell us a little bit about your podcast. How's that going?
1: Okay. Well, starting in April, because I'd lost all of my speeches, I wanted to keep being active, so I started doing podcasting, and I'm trying to do 52 podcasts over a year. Uh, I release one every Saturday, either one or two, and I'm interviewing ethics professors and other people also, uh, music people, what have you. And uh, so uh, I, 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 it's keeping me activated keeping me going and my ethics speaking. And I hope one day when all of this settles down and we have conferences again, these podcasts will help drive people to uh, hire me as a speaker. So,
0: And again, we'll include this and I want to, I want to, I want to be a subscriber to those shows. I'm looking forward to it. Do you mainly have guests or do you just sometimes do a monologue or is it always an interview?
1: I, I do about a, fourth of them are just me the rest are our guests and uh, if you want to uh, listen to them you can easiest way to get to them they're on most social media platforms but go to uh, my website aaronbeam.net definitely and the first thing you see is a little yellow box that says listen to podcast and Right now, there's 27 of my podcasts listed. That's great uh, on my website. Bye.
0: This has been great, sir. Uh, okay. ag- again, the the name of the book is called uh, "Health South: The Wagon to Disaster." Get the book, read it. I read it in two evenings, two settings. It goes quick, and you're, you'll be shaking your head from the from the first page uh, to the last page. So, Aaron, thank you for the book, and thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: Once again, great discussion with Aaron Beam. And if you head over to the CFO Bookshelf website and find the podcast page, you'll see all the links to his books and his new podcast. Hey, guys, for Bruce Reed, who is on assignment, I'm Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf.